I hate with every fiber of my being alarm clocks. I do, I honestly do, and that's not to say that I don't understand why I need one, uh, that God's given me something called a circadian rhythm. Uh, the way it's supposed to work is when the sun goes down, I get sleepy, and when the sun comes up, I wake up with it, and that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, but uh, if you read your Bibles, when humanity fell in the third chapter of Genesis, I think my circadian rhythm uh, fell with the rest of us. Um, that I don't always get sleepy when the sun goes down. Any night owls? Anybody else? Yes, all you night owl people, I see you. The Lord is with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't always get sleepy at night, and that's not always helpful because in the morning I need to what? I need to get up. Um, I need to be able to get up with the sun. Sometimes I need to be able to get up before my body feels like it. And uh, I've got various reasons to do so. I might have folks to get to daycare. I might have myself to get to work. I might have to get to a doctor's appointment, get the car to the garage, get to that meeting, get to whatever I've got that might be the reason for me having to set an alarm to get up earlier than my body would prefer. Um, so having an alarm clock, as natural as it might be, I'm pretty sure everybody's got one in here. Um, having an alarm set in the mornings is actually a, making a statement. Did you know that every time you set your alarm clock in the morning you make, to go off in the morning, you make a statement? When you set your alarm clock, it's an admission that time is going to move forward, whether you're ready for it or not. Uh, that if you slumber and sleep, and procrastinate, one of my college uh, ministers when I was at, at, at UGA, um, one of his favorite verses in Proverbs was, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you like a bandit. And he would always tell that to his kids that had assignments due. He would say, you know, whenever you're putting it off, just remember, poverty in the way of bad grades is going to come upon you like a bandit. Uh, <laughs> uh, that time is going to move forward. The sun is going to come up, that the time you've got that appointment at, or the time you've got to be at work, or the time you've got to have that assignment turned in, or the time the car's got to be in the garage, it's going to be there whether or not you're ready for it. It's coming. That the sun's going to rise, the day's going to dawn, it's not going to ask your permission, and it doesn't have to. Either we're going to be up and ready for it, or we're not. And once we miss it, no amount of begging is going to cause the sun to back up in the sky so that you can relive that part of the day again and give it another shot. That's, that's what you say when you set an alarm. You didn't know that it was that complicated when you hit that button, did you? But that's what you're doing. You're saying, I understand time's going to move forward, and I've got to be there ready for it. The message of Christ to his church in the book of Revelation is that he is coming soon. Not just that he is coming. A lot of times when we look at Revelation, we're like, the message of Revelation is Jesus is coming. That is true, but that's not the complete message. The message of Revelation is that he's coming soon. And it's tempting for us to overlook that soon part of the message because to tell the truth, we've been conditioned to believe that the return of Christ is far in advance. That every generation of Christians 
since the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, has believed that it would be the one to see the day of his return, and each generation since has died awaiting that glorious day. Start the day believing today might be the day, pass into glory, and the day has not yet come. Unfortunately, this waiting has produced an attitude that one might mistake for unbelief. If a man or woman expresses confidence that today might be the day, um, this man or woman is often met with a tone that reeks of the admonition to take a chill pill, calm down. And yet, this scent of disbelief runs contrary to the Word of God on just about every page. The messenger angel that, that is telling John these things in the book of Revelation tells him that these things must shortly come to pass. And Jesus himself told John to behold, he's coming quickly. So what difference does it make to believe he's coming soon as opposed to just coming? Isn't it enough to just believe he's coming? Why is it important for us to attach a time frame to his return? Well, hopefully by the end of this sermon, you will understand that a little bit better. But I want to read uh, Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 11, so that you can see the, the, the passage we're going to cover today. So if you'll stand with me, out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation 22, verses 6 through 11. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for making it so open and available to us. Um, Lord, we pray that we would take it seriously and we would look for your return as it may happen at any moment. And Lord, I pray that we would be ready for your arrival when you get here. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at this passage today, I want us to see uh, three qualities of the message of the book of Revelation. And the first I want us to see is that the message is time sensitive in verses 6 and 7. The, the message is time sensitive. Uh, so, so looking at verses 6 and 7, I do want to point out one thing in verse 6. That note first and foremost that the angel says the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show who? His servants. This book is primarily a message for Christians. Primarily, it's a message for Christians. Have y'all ever watched a special on the History Channel on the book of Revelation? Have you ever seen one of these? You, man, I'm telling you what, you are better for it. Better for not seeing it. I mean, if you ever get the chance, they're like train wrecks. You can't take your eyes off of them even if you want to. Uh, and, and you sit there and you watch 
this History Channel special on the book of Revelation or prophecy or something like that. And you look at it and you go, there is actually no Christian I know that believes what they're saying this book definitively says. But they say it with utmost confidence. Like, uh, clearly this is what it means. Well, it's because this book is primarily written for Christians. Um, It's amazing what interpretations you can get out of the Bible when you're not guided by the Holy Spirit. It's incredible the, the depths of silliness that you can go to. But this angel says, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must take place at some long point in the future. No, uh, which must shortly take place. And then behold, this is Jesus talking. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So if you could boil down verses 6 and 7 to their core essence, you would find they distilled down into two points. First, the words of this book are reliable. And second, the words of this book have a shelf life. Now, before you throw me out as a heretic, it doesn't take a a dictionary and an encyclopedia to understand what I mean when I say the words of this book are reliable, okay? You pick up your Bible and you can say, this is God's word, I believe it, I trust in it, and I'm right there with you, 100%. It is infallible, it is inerrant, it is the authoritative word of God. But what do I mean when I say they have a shelf life? By saying they have a shelf life, I'm not insinuating that there's a day coming on which these words are no longer going to be reliable. What I'm saying is that to a degree, you should think of them like you think about your local sale paper. Think about them like you think about your local sale paper. If you check your mail and don't immediately throw out all the stuff that's printed in color, eventually you're going to discover an amazing newspaper-like document. My favorite one is the one that comes from Huddle House. If you've never got that one, I'll put you on the list, right? Uh, maybe Ingalls sent it to you. Maybe it was IGA. Somebody, it's going to be somebody like that. It doesn't matter where you got it from. Its function is the same. The store that sent you this document wants you to know that if you will get up off your couch and you will go there Between date A and date B, you will find out that there are certain items in the store that you can buy for less than their normal amount. And that's when everybody goes and they go and buy all the the meat and they put it in their freezer because it's less expensive for them to buy the meat then than it is a week from then, right? That's the point of having the sale paper. So if you see the advertisement and you get to the store on time, you can purchase these items for their lower price. But if you sleep and if you slumber and if you fold your hands, the sale will end like a bandit, right? That the sale paper tells you there is going to come a day when this sale no longer applies. And if you come to the store, you're not going to be able to get these items for the advertised price. You're going to have to buy them at their regular rate. Now, does that mean the sale paper lied? But you told me that I could buy these things for cheap. No, I didn't. I told you you could buy them for cheap if you came to the store in time to get them at that price. The sale has a shelf life. It can expire. There's a time limit 
on it. If you want the benefit of the advertised sale, you got to be ready to buy when the time comes. The angel said these things must shortly take place. Jesus said he was coming quickly, but some of the same Christians who will hit the supermarket with urgency so they can buy cheap, boneless, skinless chicken breasts don't want to take Jesus seriously when he says the time is short. 1 Corinthians 3, now remember, this is written primarily to Christians, right? And uh, I'm going to address online and in here, if there's anybody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to address you in a minute, but I want to talk to Christians first, since that's who this, this book is written to. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, this is on your handout. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. What is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians? He's saying, Christian, there is coming a day when you will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Christian, at the judgment seat of Christ, this is different than the great white throne that we've already seen, okay? The judgment seat of Christ is where Christians are going to stand in front of Jesus and be held to account for what we did with the time, talent, and treasure he gave to us while we were here. With the time he gave you, what did you do? With the talents he gave you, what did you do? With the treasure he gave you, what did you do? Did you build anything of worth for the kingdom? It's going to be tried by fire, and we'll see whether or not it was of worth. Verse 14 says, if anyone's work which he has built on it, what? The foundation, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If you spent your life doing kingdom work, you will get kingdom reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Have y'all ever heard of somebody's house burning down and you hear it's a total loss, but they were saved? Everything they own is gone. Except they're alive. Now, that's a unique situation in that it's both a blessing and an utter tragedy, isn't it? It's a blessing in that they're alive. But it's an utter tragedy in that everything they spent their life building is gone. Imagine getting to heaven and finding out that you yourself has been saved, but your life's work has been consumed by judgment because you spent none of it working for Jesus. Well, I'm saved, and that's great, but my reward's not the same as someone who actually spent their life serving Jesus. And we don't talk about that a lot, do we? But isn't it pretty clear right here in 1 Corinthians 3? Christian, you've got precious little time before one of two things occurs— Either Jesus is coming to you or you're going to him. One way or another, the twain shall meet and there will be, an, there will be a reckoning. What are you spending your time doing? 
Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your talents? Where are you spending your treasure? Because these promises, these, this word has a shelf life. Eventually, the time for working will be over. The sun will go down, the day will end, and you will not have another opportunity to put your shoulder to the plow for Christ. You will be either rewarded or will suffer loss, and there will be no more time for working to, to change the outcome. Is that solemn? Is that sobering? It should be. That's what Jesus intended it to be. Often when we say, come Lord Jesus, we're looking at his return with what almost escapist eyes that we want him to come so that we can avoid suffering. The number of times I prayed Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus, come and snatch me away from this fallen sinful earth right before a test I wasn't prepared for is unbelievable. One of the most sanctifying experiences in a Christian's life. <laughs> but, but we want him to come so that we can avoid suffering, but the Bible doesn't really present the return of Jesus that way. Jesus doesn't say pray for his return so that we won't have to suffer. In fact, what Jesus says is that you're going to suffer. You can bank on it. The day and hour of his return are fixed, and suffering in this world is assured. Now, the context in which Jesus' return is presented is one of warning. Believer, you need to make sure that you're spending the time you've been given in such a way that when the master returns, he's going to reward you for laboring in his absence and not rebuke you for sleeping and disbelieving him when he said his return was near. That This message of this book is... In fact, time-sensitive. Second, I want us to see that the message of this book is heavy. The message of this book is heavy. Not just Revelation, but the entirety of God's Word. The message of this book is heavy. And what do I mean by that? Well, how many of y'all know Jerry Clower? Yes, Lord, if y'all don't know Jerry Clower, y'all have an appointment with YouTube when you get home. Jerry Clower tells a story of a rancher who decided he's going to bring him home a new, a new stud bull one day. And the news worked its way through the cows and through the other bulls that he had. And the three bulls that he had were, were in the pen, and they got to talking to each other when they heard the news. And the first bull kind of thought the ground a little bit, let his displeasure be known. He looked at the other two, and he said, I want you all to know I've been here for years. You seen them cows out there in that field? Half of them cows out there is mine. And I don't plan on sharing with the new guy. He wants any of my cows, he's going to have to come have a talk with me, and I'm going to let him know that's, how, that's not how it's going to work. And the second bull, he kind of pawed a little bit, but his brr was a little bit smaller because he's a little bit younger. He, ain't been, he said, I've only been here, I've been here about half as long as you, and I got, I got a couple dozen cows out there that, that I claim is mine, but I'm right here with you. I might not be big dog on the ranch like you, but he's not taking any of my cows, and I'm right there with you. He can come talk to the both of us. And the third bull didn't even make a sound. He said, I've only been here about three months, and they've got about five cows even like me. He said, but I'm certainly not giving up. It's a single cow that I have. So I feel like the three of us, all together, we can put this guy in his place. And so they continued with the big talk for a couple weeks. Till his trailer backed up. There were dents in the metal on the side of it. It was shaking when it pulled in. And you could hear it from the inside. And down came the lift gate. 
And off that truck came the biggest Brahma bull you've ever seen. He pawed at the dirt, threw them horns around, let everybody know he was now in charge. And the first bull looked at the other two and said, fellas, I've been thinking. I may have, uh, I may have been a little hasty in, in being so rude to the new guy. He's going to need some, some introductions and some help around here to kind of get his... So maybe we should be a little bit more generous with him. And the second bull said, yeah, you know, be, maybe we, were, we're, we need to be a little bit more Christ-like. We need to be a little bit more, a little bit kinder. The third bull, the guy who'd only been there a few weeks, he busted out of his pen, ran straight up about 15 feet away from the new guy, started pawing the dirt, throwing his head around, as loud as he could get, kicking up a storm, making a racket, and the other two looked at him and said, you idiot, what are you doing? He's going to kill you. And the third bull looked at the other two and said, I just want to make sure he knows I'm a bull. Isn't it amazing how sometimes you just don't appreciate the weight of something until you see it? That it, You can hear about it. You can plan for it. But until you come face to face with it, the implications of it don't really sink in. Now, John knew that Jesus was going to return, didn't he? John knew this. John was there at the ascension. He watched him rise. He was there when the angel said, why do you stare after him into heaven like a dum-dum? He's going to come back the same way you've seen him go. John was there. He knows. Jesus said it himself. John was under no delusion that the world he lived in was going to continue forever the way it was. He also knew that the future for believers was bright and the future for those who reject Jesus Christ was very dim. But what he wasn't prepared to do was come face to face with what it was going to be like when it happened. When he saw it, when he heard it, when he became aware of exactly how it was going to go down, he fell down on his face and worshipped the first supernatural creature he could see, which was that angel. And it was a grievous error, and thankfully the angel, the angel corrected it. Did he not? The angel says, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the apostles, and of your, and of your brethren the prophets, excuse me, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So, so the angel corrects him. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't shoot the messenger? John did the opposite. John worshiped the messenger, right? Still, still wrong. But before we jump on and we pile on John for what he did, stop and consider this for a second. When's the last time that you were moved to worship to this degree when you heard the word of God? John was so overcome, he just fell down on his face in worship. And it was so instinctive that he even just directed it the wrong direction. We own Bibles, but we don't read them. We possess the greatest wealth of biblical teaching, preaching, and scholarship in the history of the world. And according to Lifeway Research, less than one-third of Protestant churchgoers in the United States read their Bibles every day. A little more than a quarter read it a few times a week. 
12% read it once a week, 11% read it a few times a month, 5% read it once a month, and 12% admit to rarely, if ever, reading their Bibles. That's only Protestant churchgoers. 12% of church-going Americans never open their Bible outside church. Why is it that we regard a message as weighty as this one, so dense as the Word of God itself, so lightly? Why do we do that? What is it that, that takes our attention away? Why do we not give it the weight that it deserves? John Piper said that one of the great uses of social media at the judgment seat of Christ will be as a witness that our prayerlessness was not due to lack of time. We can rack up streaming hours on Netflix. We can spend a few more minutes on Facebook. We can sign our kids up for one more sport, drive our family to one more distraction and call it a vacation. We can do all these things, but only one third of churchgoers can find time to read their Bibles once a day. We can watch hours of Fox News or CNN and spend little to no time in the Gospels. We can read the newspaper, but not the Psalms. Our other news feeds, but none of the epistles. We expect our children to know calculus, American history, literature, and science by the time they're 18. But if they don't know their Bibles, that's okay, because God knows their hearts. Here's the bottom line. The rest of the world's never going to take the people of God seriously until we take our calling as the people of God seriously. And we're not taking our calling as the people of God seriously if we don't take the Word of God seriously. So Christian, that's, that, that, that's, that's your message from this verse. But now, but now, to those out there who maybe have never given their life to Christ, uh, this week I had to take my, I had to take my, my car to the, the garage to get some, some stuff done on the brakes. And while I was there, I was reading an old sermon uh, by a Puritan uh, named John Flavel. Anybody ever heard of John Flavel at all? He's a Puritan. You should look him up. Um, and, and in a book, which is a collection of sermons called Christ Knocking on the Door of Sinners' Hearts, in a sermon from Revelation 3, he says, A record is made and a witness taken of all the refusals, disobedience, and slidings of Christ by others. Thus Moses will be the accuser of the Jews. John 5, 45, don't think I'll accuse you to the Father. There's one that accuses you, even Moses in whom you trust. This is the saddest part of a minister's work. The forethoughts of it are more afflictive than all our labors and sufferings. There's a threefold record made in this case. One, of the time men have enjoyed under the means of salvation. How many years they have sat barren and dead-hearted under the labors of God's faithful ministers. Luke 13, 7, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Behold, the same term of notification with that in the text applied to the time of God's patience toward them. And again, Jeremiah 25, 3, from the 13th year of Josiah, even unto this day, that is the 3 and 20th year, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. Oh, consider all the days and years you have spent under the gospel are upon your doomsday book. Two, records are also made of all the instruments that God ever employed for the conversion and salvation of your souls. So many ministers, whether fixed or transient, as have spent their labors on you or upon the book of your account. 
Jeremiah 25, 4, the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early, sending them, but you have not hearkened, nor have you have inclined your ear. They've wasted their lungs, dropped their compassionate tears, and burnt down one after another as candles to direct you to Christ and salvation, but all in vain. Every Three, every call, persuasion, and argument used by them to espouse you to Christ is likewise on the book of your account. Proverbs 1, 24 and 25, because I've called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have said it not, all my counsels and would none of my reproof. These calls and counsels are of too great value with God, though of none with you, to be lost and left out of your account. What John Flavel was saying is every single time you've heard the gospel, every single time it's been presented to you, every single time the word of God was opened and read in your presence and told you you are a sinner just as all of us were and God loved you and did not want you damned to hell. He did not want you lost and separate from him for all eternity. He loved you enough that he sent his son to die on the cross for you and did all righteousness for you so that all you would have to do is come to him in repentance for salvation and he will regenerate your heart wipe the slate clean and guarantee that you have a home in glory with him forevermore devoid of sin death suffering and anything bad you've experienced in this world that all of that every time you've heard it and you have said no that is recorded in heaven there is a record made of that and one day you will stand before God and he will say, why did you refuse this time? Why did you refuse this time? Why did you refuse this time? Why did you refuse when you read that? Why did you refuse when you heard this on the radio? Why did you refuse when you heard that on the TV? Why did you refuse when you heard the gospel in that podcast? Why did you refuse when you heard this on August 23rd in Stapleton, Georgia, when Pastor Josh Mosley begged you, if you've never given your life to Christ, come to the cross and be saved? What is your explanation for why you refused me then? And he will do that with every single opportunity to be saved you had. Do not take this lightly. I am not trying to scare you, but if it happens, I'm not going to apologize for it. That you will be held to account for every single gospel word you heard. And what's scariest to me, in the same sermon, John, Fla John Flavel makes a point. He says that they will be called as witnesses. Throughout Scripture, it's used, these will be witnesses against you. Who? Me! Jesus will say, Pastor Josh, did you preach the gospel to this person on this day? And I'll say, yes, Lord, I did. Did they refuse? Yes, Lord, they did. Today is the day I beg and plead for your soul. When I'm called as a witness in Jesus' court, I have no authority, no pull, no way to save you. I'm merely a witness. I'm not the judge. I'm begging you, come to Christ today so that I don't have to tell Jesus then that you refused me when I preached it to you. I don't want to do that 
But I just want to tell you, if King Jesus calls me to the witness stand, I got more faithfulness to him than I do to you. And I won't be the only witness. Everybody sitting in this room will be. Everybody watching this online will be. Did Josh say this? Was this opportunity given to so-and-so? Yes, Lord Jesus, it was. I know, I was there. Don't take it lightly. John 14, 15, I gave you the ESV because I think it captures the, the Greek better. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To say that you love Jesus and that you, you follow him, that you are a disciple and yet not obey him, you take his word so lightly Jesus says, if you won't keep my commandments, that's proof that you don't love me. Please don't take it so lightly as to be presumptive and think that you have a relationship with Christ when you don't, when there is no witness in your life that you have one. Do you obey his commandments? Do you have that witness in yourself? Message is heavy. And then finally, uh, this message is optional. This message is optional. Now, if you really thought that I was a heretic before, that, that, that ought to really wake you up. Josh just said the Bible is optional. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Look at verse 10. He said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. In these two verses, the angel says three things. First, this book is public. There's nothing in this book that's hidden, that's secret to anybody. Anybody can open it and see what it has to say. Second, the words of this book are shortly coming to pass. That assuming that they're going to tarry for forever, it's a, it's a bad calculation to make because they're coming shortly to pass. And then finally, let people do with this book whatever they want. Christianity is maligned unfairly, I might add, as a restrictive and regressive religion. And people ask us, what right do those Christians think they have to tell us how we ought to live our lives? And in short, we don't have any right to tell men and women how to live their lives. And when you get down to the brass tacks of the matter, we don't even claim to have the authority to tell men and women how they ought to live their lives. What we do claim to, however, is a word from God. And God does have the authority to tell men and women how they ought to live their lives. Because no man would even have his life if God had not given it to him to live. God is the one who has the authority to make moral distinctions and judgments like that. And at the point we make this claim, not that we have the authority, but that we have a word from God who does have the authority, one of two things has to happen. And don't be mistaken, there are only two paths someone who hears that claim may walk. Option A, the hearer bows the knee in response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing his sin and turning to Jesus in repentance, finding salvation for his soul and hope of eternal life. And that's what we want everybody to do. You hear the message that we have a word from God contained in Scripture, that we are sinners 
and that Christ has been provided to you for forgiveness and regeneration, that you can be saved by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You hear that, you respond, you bow the knee, you repent, and you're saved. That's option A. Option B, the hearer ignores, brushes off the lines, or otherwise rejects the messenger, storing up wrath for himself in the day of judgment. Those are the only two options. It doesn't matter why you reject it. It doesn't matter why you brush it off. It doesn't matter if you do it politely or roughly. What matters is that you did. Either you accept it or you reject it. The reason and tone of your rejection is immaterial. Way, 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 way back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 2, God gave humanity something wonderful and terrifying at the same time. He gave us the ability to choose whether we would obey Him. If we choose to obey Him, we enjoy the blessings of fellowship with Him because obedience to God is obedience to the gospel, resulting in adoption into His family. But if we choose to disobey Him, we face the consequences of our sin. In a word, hell. God does not make us obey him. He just tells us what will happen to us if we don't. Okay? As God's angelic messenger reveals this book to John, he closes by telling John to let people live however they want to. Just make sure that they know what's going to happen so that their choice is informed. If a man wants to be unjust, he may be so but not without the voice of the church warning him what the result of his decision will be. If somebody decides to be filthy, so be it. But let them be warned by the church that God has set a day for judgment and it is rapidly approaching. If a woman chooses to be righteous, encourage her. God has promised that it will be rewarded. If a man chooses to be holy, God has provided a way for him. The holiness of Christ is available to all. The point. This book is public. Its truth is available to anybody who wants to see it. But God isn't going to treat you like a puppet and make you pantomime obedience and faith. You truly can decide whether you want to heed his warnings or not. He loves you. He has done everything necessary for you to be saved. He has paid the highest price, but he will not make you bow the knee today. You can choose to do so peacefully now, or be forced to do so later. It is completely up to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30. So Josh, we're in Revelation. Why do we go to Deuteronomy? Listen to what Moses said to the Jews as he was getting ready to die. He said, this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. In other words, this ain't hard to understand, guys. It ain't rocket science. It's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life in good, death and evil in that I command you today to love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. 
I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob to give them. That there is a choice set before you today. And after my forebear Moses, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today because they will be witnesses against you in that day. You have set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing, eternal life and glory with God the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit, forever untarnished by sin, suffering, and death. Or you can choose death, rejecting the gift of God the Father by rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and rejecting the prompting of the Holy Spirit that even now calls you to repent and be saved. You can reject all of that and choose death. God does not send anybody to hell. All He does is notarize the form asking to go. If you want God to leave you alone, he will. That's called hell. That's what it is. I'm tired of hearing the gospel. I'm tired of being told I need to repent. I'm tired of being told I'm a sinner. I'm tired of being told that my life is, is headed straight to hell. I'm tired of it. Make it stop. Make them quit. Tell them to leave me alone. I promise you, you will experience none of those things in hell. No one will call you to be saved. No one will call you to repent. No one will tell you there is hope. No one will tell you there's a way out. No one will tell you of the love of God because all you will experience is his wrath. Again, I am not trying to scare you, but if I do, I don't apologize. This message is heavy and this message is optional. You can choose whether or not you want to listen to it. But you cannot do so without this little country preacher and this little country church telling you what happens if you ignore it. I love y'all, and I don't want you in hell. That's the long and the short of it. It might be an option, but that doesn't mean it's not a command. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my call to you today. Obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, come to him in repentance. Ask him to save you. I promise you he will. I promise you he will. And I promise you life with him is better than life without him. Oh, but all the things I got to give up. Ignore all the things you got to give up. Leave them behind. They're worthless anyway. What you find when you come to him is a whole lot better than anything you left behind. I promise you that. Taste and see that the Lord's good. Come to Jesus. Joyce is going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. One day I'll remember what hymn it's going to be because somewhere over the course of this sermon I've dropped my bulletin. I'm about to step down and I'm going to find it on this pew in front of me. But what's going to happen... And she's going to play us a couple verses of an invitation hymn. I'm going to cut the camera off. 
and we're going to stand up and we're going to sing. And my eyes are going to be roving to and fro over this sanctuary. And if you need to talk to me about giving your life to Jesus, you find some way to signal me. And if I see it, I'm going to hunt you down after this service. If I don't see you, you hunt me down after this service. Don't you let me leave here without talking to me about giving your life to Christ. I'm going to pray. And if you need to come, you come.